To try to find remote working, I think that's one positive thing that's come out of the pandemic is remote working has become so much more available, which is great because it gives people more flexibility to live their life and do other things besides just the nine to five. This is Chan with the Plan the Podcast, a podcast providing career advice and easy, actual steps for frustrated professionals, helping you overcome career challenges so you stop feeling confused and defeated and start feeling focused and confident in order to excel in your career. I'm your host, Max Chan. Now let's dive into the episode. Hey, Megan. Welcome to the show. Hey, Max. Thanks so much for having me. How's the UK. It's very cold and rainy here today, actually, but tomorrow is supposed to warm up again. So looking forward to the sun. This has been quite chilly the last few days. Well, we are entering fall, right? So, well, we are already yeah. in fall. Yeah. yeah. So I think I'm in denial. I was like having to put a sweater on and I was like, what is this? I want to be in a t-shirt. <laughs> and uh, speaking of adapting to change, just adapting to seasons, you have an interesting story in regards to making a career transition or as you say, a triple jump, which we'll get into a bit later. So why don't you tell my listeners more about your story in terms of where you started when you graduated and then where you are now? Yeah, so I went to Michigan State University. I graduated from there. I studied media and public relations. And when I graduated, I moved to Los Angeles and I was living there for three years and I worked for a music PR firm. So doing publicity for different musical artists, charity events, The coolest thing I got to do was I went to the Playboy Mansion, which was really fun and called my dad saying, dad, guess where I am? He's like, what are you doing there? So I made a complete move from PR and LA and the beach and the weather. And I just mentioned rainy London. So in 2007, I moved to London for what I thought would be a year. And I worked for a law firm in HR. And I also worked in their training department. So helping them to organize events. So we'll get into that, like how people can change industries. But It was a lot about transferable skills. So I've been in London for 15 years now, never went home, married with a small child, and have worked for several companies now in finance and consulting and education. So I've worked for Goldman Sachs, Barclays, KPMG. The last five years I spent at Imperial College Business School, and I've been a qualified career coach for 10 years now. Let's take a step back. What made you decide to make just a drastic move in regards to moving to another country? Yeah. So I had always wanted to go abroad and I just had never had the chance, especially wanted to go to Europe. And then when I moved to Los Angeles, I had a friend who did a program, which was a year long. That was, you could come to London, they would arrange your housing, they would pay you a monthly stipend and you could work for a company. So when she did it, she came back and she said, you have to try to get in, you know, do the application. You would love it. It was so much fun. So I really thought it was just going to be a year. And I thought, why not? Let's give it a try. And because I had, when I was in college, I was working part-time for a recruitment agency. So I had a bit of HR recruitment background. So when they saw that I worked in media, they said, you know, we don't really have anything in that area. We mostly work with banks and law firms, but we could probably get you into an HR position. And I said, you know, I really don't care what it is. I just want to go to London. So it was just one of those things where I interviewed and, you know, was able to talk about the different things that I had done in media that could transfer over and, you know, things like your good communication skills, people skills, organizing events. That was all really helpful in HR and training. So that was how I got the job in London. And they said, yeah, okay, come over for a year. And then while I was here, I met the person who's now my husband. 
but I needed a different visa. So I was lucky enough that they, at the time they had the highly skilled visa. Unfortunately, it doesn't exist anymore. So I always hate to tell people about it because it gets their hopes up. But that was what I did. So I transferred to that visa, worked full time for another year in the U.S. while I was getting the money and you had to prove like savings and different things like that. And you had to work at a certain level. So I was able then to get that new visa in 2009. And then I've been back in London ever since then. Yeah, I actually want to get into that in terms of being able to move and work at another country, right? Because a lot of people yeah. try to get into the U.S. with visas mm-hmm. and stuff and it's very competitive. Yeah. So what is your advice in terms of people trying to move to another country to work when it's so competitive to get those visas that you've been discussing? Yeah, well, my top tip for any kind of job search is networking. It's always about who you know and who you can get in front of. Because if you're just relying on things like an application or, you know, something that you've written on paper, and we pretty much sound very similar to everyone else when we're applying for jobs, most people have similar backgrounds, similar skills, similar experiences. So to really stand out, you've got to put yourself out there and actually connect with people face to face. You know, they need to see that you're a real human, that you're genuinely interested and motivated. Also look for ways like if you're thinking about things like an industry change, or you're trying to get to another country that way, you want to look into things like volunteering, you know, can you do some kind of online training, Nowadays, there's a lot of digital nomad visas coming out as well. So I know Spain is introducing one in the next year, I believe. I just saw that in the news the other day. You can go to places like Indonesia and be a digital nomad. Thailand is popular as well. So that's also another option is, you know, try to find remote working. I think that's one positive thing that's come out of the pandemic is remote working has become so much more available, which is great because it gives people more flexibility to live their life and do other things besides just the nine to five. Go back to what you said about the digital nomad visa, because that's interesting. So can you tell us more about how that works? Yeah. So, well, the one I was just reading about for Spain is that they will give you a five-year visa. And what you need to do is if you have an employer anywhere that allows you to work remotely, you can then move to Spain as long as you can prove that you have an income. And it's not a super high income. I want to say it was about 2,000 euros, which at this point is probably about $2,000 as well with the exchange rate these days. So it doesn't have to be super high, but they also give you a tax break. And then it means that you can work there. You can live there as a normal citizen and you can be there for up to five years. How about freelancers? Is there a freelancer visa or has it be an actual company? As far as I know, from what I remember reading, I believe it has to be an actual company. But don't quote me on that because there could be some flexibility. It hasn't come out officially, so I don't think people can apply just quite yet. But it was just in the news a couple of days ago here and said that it was coming very soon. So I imagine it's going to be probably start of 2023, I think. And that's when you'll get all the details. But, you know, you could also look. There's other things like there's a really large company called TopTail, T-O-P-T-A-L. They have positions all around the globe. And if you are able to get to one of those countries, you can work for them 100% remotely. So you could look for companies like that as well. There's a lot of good websites, things like Remote Jobs and We Work Remotely, where you can find dedicated positions that are remote that could allow you to secure something like that and then move to a country of your choice if they have that type of visa. There's 47 countries that you can get a digital nomad visa with. 47 countries? 47 countries, yeah. Well, that's awesome. (laughs) That's pretty cool. (laughs) 
Yeah, because I have a friend. He does real estate, right? And he's just fed up with like just staying in the same area, and he wants yeah. to like, be a digital nomad, right? Where he can travel mm-hmm. the world and work. Because he's trying to yeah. start up like a media company, but he's more more like freelancing to start, right? He doesn't work for somebody right, right now. But you're saying yeah. for this visa that like, you have to have a company. Let's say in the states, like let's say Verizon, as an example, can give you the ability to work. Actually, no, let's talk about Airbnb because Airbnb had that huge work in the yeah, right? Policy, Everyone right? can yeah. work from anywhere now. Yeah, yeah. so like. If I wanted to work at Airbnb and I say, hey, I want to go to Spain to work there, I can actually apply for a digital nomad visa and it would work. Yeah, Mm -hmm. exactly. That's really cool because I know other professionals that they'll go on vacation for three weeks, but they won't be completely off the grid for three weeks. They'll maybe do like two weeks vacation, like using their vacation days. And then the other week is they actually work, right? But they still get to stay where they are. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think with so many things online, it seems a bit silly, doesn't it? That when we hear about employers that say, oh, you must be back in the office. You can't still work from home. Or, you know, telling people that, oh, you haven't really been working that hard while you've been home, which is just crazy because we've all had so many things on our plates. And, you know, balancing work was just like one of probably 10 things we were all trying to do in the same day. So it just seems really unfair given the amount of work that people have put in, like literal blood, sweat, and tears to keep companies running over the last few years to then be told, oh, you weren't really working that hard. Yeah. And research has shown that people have been more productive during working remotely than in the office, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even in the UK, we just did a trial of a four-day working week and 86% of people said that it was just as productive as the five-day week. And the companies that participated, 86% said they would be happy to do it like to roll it out full time. Unfortunately, there's still some like old school mentality of like wanting to watch you work at the office. So mm-hmm. there is that like, yeah, absolutely. there's a new school versus the old school. So what's your prediction in terms of the next five years in regards to workplace flexibility? Yeah, how will that change? Well, it's interesting because Forbes did an article, I think it was earlier this year that said that if companies are not willing to adapt and move to this more flexible way of working, they really won't survive. And they had a lot of reasons behind it. But, you know, I think bottom line is it comes down to what are employees willing to do? And if employees are saying, no, I will not go in or I don't want to be in the office five days a week or I want to keep my flexibility, then employees will have no choice but to pivot unless they want to deal with high rates of unemployment, which is pretty much what's happening now. There was a post on LinkedIn how strategic recruiters, when they see a company announcing that everybody has to go back to the office, they have basically emailed or DM these people say, hey, we have a fully remote environment. Do you want to come join us, right? So it's the easiest way to approach professionals for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Sneaky, but smart at the same time. Yeah. So you met your now husband in the UK, right? So you've also did other industry changes during your time in the UK, right? So Mm -hmm. can you tell us more about that? Yeah. So when I mentioned I moved to London the first time, I was working for a law firm. Then when I came back in 2009, so I had a year break where I was back home, I was working for an accounting firm during that year. Then I came back to London in 2009. And where was I? Then I was in finance. I was working at Goldman Sachs in recruitment. I was working for an insurance broker, Lloyd's of London. And then I moved to Barclays. So Barclays, I was in their retail banking side of things doing training and development. So I was in finance for quite some time. Then I moved to consulting at KPMG for a few years. And then after that, I had a career break because I had my son. And then when I went back, I went to Imperial and I was there for five years in higher education, career coaching for MSc and MBA students. Quite a mix. (laughs) (laughs) So in regards to having a child, you were gone out of the workforce for about like one year? Yeah, 18 months, actually. 
18 months. And how are you able to like get back into the workforce? Like a lot of people feel nervous about their career gap on the resume, even though it's natural, like just as like raising a family, right? So like Mm -hmm. what's your recommendation in terms of resolving that career gap to get back into the workforce strongly? Yeah. So I think one thing is to not discount the experiences that you gain through a career break, whether it be, you know, you take a year to travel or like I did take a year to raise a small child, or maybe you just need a break for your mental health. There's no shame in that. Nothing wrong with that either. So, but look at things like, you know, did you do volunteering? Were you still, you know, organizing events? Were you managing a household? Were you managing a budget? Things like that are still transferable skills and you can still demonstrate that you have done some quality things during that break. And also too, don't forget to leverage the experience that you had before your break because those things still count. You still have those skills. You know, sure that you might feel a little rusty. It might take a little time to build your confidence again. And I think that's where the networking, again, like I'm going to go back to networking all the time because what I did to get my job at Imperial was I was specifically looking for more part-time working flexible things because I also was going to start my own coaching business. So I didn't want to go back five days into the office. And what I did was when I saw some positions part-time advertised, I then reached out to people that were working in that team already. And I said to them, I see you have a role in your team. I wondered if I could talk to you, what it's like to work there, you know, what the environment's like, what the flexibility is like, what do you enjoy about the role? Because I wanted to make sure it was a good fit for me. And I think that's something that people need to remember that recruitment and interviews and joining a company is a two-way process. A lot of times people feel like the employer has all of the power, you know, that they have to take what they're offered. There's no room for negotiation, but it absolutely should be your decision too. And you have to make sure that you're clear on what it is that you want and need for your life. You know, what kind of company you want to work for? What are your values? What your strengths and skills are that you bring to the role so that you find the best fit for you? So can you walk us through how you restarted your job search, so to speak, as you were getting ready to enter back into the workforce? Yeah. So the first thing I did was I just reached out to people that I had worked for previously or people that I had maintained friendships with and said to them, you know, I'm looking for work again. Here's what I'm interested in. And because I knew I really wanted to be focused on careers and career coaching and things like that, I was quite specific about what I would and wouldn't apply for. But, you know, that was my personal preference that I I didn't want to just take anything. I wanted it to be the right fit for me. So first I would, I spoke to everyone that I knew, putting it out there. LinkedIn is another great way you can do that. You can mark that you're available for work, that you're open to work on your profile. You can keep it hidden from your current employers if you want to, if that's a concern for anyone. You can also post an announcement on it. If you are someone that's coming back from a break, whatever you've been doing, you can say, hey, everyone, I'm back again, interested in these types of roles or looking for this type of work. If you know someone, I'd love to connect. Just something like that. People are generally helpful. They want to you know, give people tips and help them out and tell them, introduce them to people. So that's a great way to do that. And then from there, then I was just looking online. You know, people would sometimes send me roles. I would find things on LinkedIn. I would look online on different websites. And then that's when I started reaching out to people that worked in the teams when I found something I thought I was interested in and then making the decision from there if I wanted to apply or go through with the interviews. You always go back to networking. I always say that networking is a great equalizer, whether you think that you don't have enough skills or you have a big career gap or you're looking to make a career transition. It seems like Mm -hmm. networking and knowing people is a lot easier than trying to apply online, right? 
Absolutely. Yeah, because it's so much more powerful, right? If you think just everyday conversation, if somebody says, hey, Max, I know this girl, Megan, she's great. She's a career coach. You should have her on your podcast. Because you have that relationship with them and you trust them, you think, okay, I'll give this girl a call. I'll ask her if she wants to be a guest. Whereas if I'm some random person, you might be like, oh, I don't know. I'm not sure. I need to check you out. Like I need to find the website. I need to see, does she have clients? What's her feedback like? All of those things. You'd be a lot more cautious. You wouldn't want to make a quick decision. So when you have that trust or you've spoken to someone, someone can say, hey, I had a conversation with them. They're really good. You should look at their application or have a look at their resume or bring, I think you should bring them in for an interview. It's why so many companies offer referral bonuses and things like that, because they trust their employees. If they've hired you, they want more people like you and their team too. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of professionals are nervous in terms of reaching out to people mm -hmm. to get a referral, right? But if you approach it yeah. the right way, they are willing to help you because as you said, there's a referral bonus. Yeah, absolutely. And people really are just, there's not many people that would be cold hearted and go, absolutely not. I won't help you. I mean, like, I don't think I've ever been told no, as long as you ask it in a nice and professional way. So as you already discussed, you have changed industries numerous times. What made you decide that it was the right time to do something different? Yeah, I think part of it too for me was like finding the right industry and the right space I wanted to be in because I had come from such a non-corporate background working in LA in a music firm. I mean, it was like flip-flops and jeans every day. And then when I moved to London the first time, it was suddenly corporate law, you know, very like suited and booted type of thing. And I think I was also just trying to figure out like, where did I fit in? Like what space did I want to work in? And I was happy to change industries because I really loved the training side of things and helping people develop their careers, which is then what led me to get qualified as a coach. But I think it was just that curiosity of like, what else is out there? And would I like this better? And I think sometimes, you know, people are afraid to make that jump right. because like, oh, it's not going to work out. Or what if they tell me no? Or what if they reject me? And I always think like, if, if it's a no, it just means not now, not yet, like, but keep going because somebody will eventually give you a chance. So you really do have to understand that recruitment is a bit of a numbers game as well sometimes. And so just because one company rejects you doesn't mean that all of those types of companies will reject you. You just have to find the one that's the right fit for you and the one that is willing to train you and put in some effort and seize your potential. All right. I have a question on top of that, but go back to your networking point. I think what scares most people about networking is they feel like they're the one that has to do all the talking and they have to sell themselves to people. When what you want to do with networking is actually find out more about that person. Ask them, you know, what is it like to work there? What do you most enjoy about it? What does your day-to-day -day look like? And what advice would you have for someone that wants to work in this company or this industry? Because I have so many times where I say to people, like, you have to get out there and network. You've, you've had a career break. You don't have a lot of connections. And they're like, oh, I can't do that. I'm really introverted. I'm not someone who puts myself out there. And I say, it's not about you. Networking is not about you. Networking is about you getting in front of them and getting the information you need to make the decision if that job is right for you. Exactly. And to go back to the other point before, just because you get rejected for one company doesn't mean you're going to be rejected for every other company for that yeah. same position because recruiters are looking for cultural fit to see if you'll succeed in the organization. So even if you have the marketing skill set, as an example, if the recruiter finds that you wouldn't work well here, then they're mm -hmm. going to find someone else, right? But that doesn't mean you can't work for somebody else because there might be a company that better fits your personality and values. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, it's the company culture, isn't it? You could have like, 10 investment banks or 10 marketing firms or whatever they are, but they're all going to be slightly different when you get in there. The people will be all slightly different as well. So, you know, it's like if one says no, that's okay. There's other options. There's usually not just one company that 
is the only one that does that thing. So, you know, don't get too discouraged. You just have to keep going. Yeah. Like you worked at a law firm, right? There's probably hundreds of law firms in the UK. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I could have found another one if I wanted to, but I was like, "Mm, no, law is not really for me. I think I'll try something else. (laughs) One of the biggest fears of making a career move is having to start over and starting over in a general sense is a lower title and a lower pay. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah. Oh, that's a good one because that seems to be a big thing that comes up with people, right? They're like, I know I might have to take a step backwards and I'm not sure that I want to do that. So I think, again, it comes down to how clear are you on what it is that you want to do? So why do you want to make that change from that industry or that company or whatever it is, the country? So you've got to have a really clear motivation. And just because you might have to take a step backward doesn't mean that you're going to be a lower level forever. I think you also have to look at it as, is this a stepping stone that will get me in the right direction to where I want to be eventually? Because there's always movement. There's always room for growth. And sometimes you just want to get your foot in the door. And if it's to take a step back, because you know it will push you forward in the future, then it will be worth it. As the saying goes, it's better to take a step back and then do two steps forward because you actually like what you do than staying somewhere that you don't really want because then that's yeah gonna affect your mental yeah, right? health right no, over the long term there'll be no satisfaction in your life yeah exactly and i just think life is too short and what you do for a living is such a big part of your life that if you're miserable in it it just means that everything else will not bring you joy either you'll just be so bogged down with that misery which moves to our next topic of the discussion you did work at one of the top business schools in london right yeah i did and Uh, What programs did you help with? Yeah, so in the team at Imperial, we worked across sectors and industries and all of the programs. So we had finance, we had business, we had management, but we also had really interesting programs like strategic marketing and climate change. Uh, They're very big on entrepreneurship and innovation. So they also had a MSc program based on that. So they really do encourage students to have their own businesses and try different things, which I think is great because when you are in that space, when you're in the master's and MBA programs are only a year at that school. So it goes really quick. And I always would tell people like, this is your time to try everything, to ask all the questions, to make a mistake. It is okay. This is like your one year of safe space, basically. And then at the end of it, all of those things will help you to be really clear on what it is you want to get into next, because many of the population were international. I think it's about 60 or 70 percent came from outside of the UK. And many of them were coming from, let's say, technical backgrounds like engineering, computer science, things like that. And then they wanted to move into things like finance and consulting. So that was also a big jump for them. They were transferring their skills, you know, moving countries, moving industries, sectors. So all of that was happening at the same time. And in regards to that, you have a lot of people like coming from abroad, right? You said 67%, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So you discussed that a lot of people that go into these programs, they're making a career change, or as you said, yeah. the triple gem, right? Which is country, career, and what's the last one? So company, country, and industry. Oh, company, country, and industry. Okay. So from working with all these professionals, what's the common reasons why they want to make just a drastic career or professional change? Yeah, a lot of them wanted to move from more technical roles into leadership roles or client-facing types of roles. So for them, you know, they might have been an engineer for five, 10 years, and they would do something like an MBA to get that business and leadership skills and then be able to transfer into a position like that in the future or after their MBA. 
All right. And what are some of the common, we already discussed a few already, but what are some of the common like fears they have when they're trying to make this transition in your school? Yeah. So one of the fears was, will somebody really look at me? Will a company really consider me if I've come from such a different background? Other times they were worried that because they didn't have any experience in the country, that could also be negative for them. And that can be tricky if you're someone that's coming where you've had maybe 10 years in one country and moving to a brand new country. It can be a concern, but there's ways around it. And the other thing I think was just that they didn't really know a lot of people in the country. So they weren't sure where to start. And you know they would often think, why would anyone want to speak to me? Or why would anybody want to hire me if I'm someone that they don't know? Go back to what you said. I have spoken to professionals in Europe that finish their master's program, whatever it may be, and they find it difficult to get employment in the country. But you just said that there's ways around it. So what Mm -hmm. are some of your recommendations for those people? Yeah. So I think a big thing that people get stuck on is if you're coming from another country, they often want to get hired on permanently or find a company that will sponsor them so they can get permanent residency, which takes five years. But that can sometimes be limited. Companies' budgets change, you know, crises happen in the world. I mean, I moved to London, it was the 2007-8 financial crash, and that was a crazy time. So things like that happen. So my recommendation is always to look at temporary and contract work as well. Because again, it's a company that is, let's say the UK, it'd be a company in the UK still, it gets you local experience on your CV, it gets your foot in the door somewhere. And it's a funny game where Employers will look at your resume and they're like, no, you don't have any UK experience. It seems a bit risky to interview or hire this person. But as soon as you get a company on there, it piques their interest and they're like, hmm, okay, if that company hired them or if that company's brought them in, they might be worth talking to. You made a good point. For example, if you work at a big company, let's say at Goldman Sachs, then every other big company will say, okay, if this company took them on, then they're mm-hmm. going to be good for enough for us too, right? That's why some uh, professionals may find it harder to go from a small to medium-sized business to a large corporation because they don't have that large corporate experience or that brand name on their resume, right? So it's one of those like the first role is the hardest, but then once you get that Mm -hmm. uh, role, that company you want, then it becomes a lot easier to make lateral moves. Absolutely. Yeah, it gets the ball rolling. And you look more attractive, right? It's like if you see a good looking person and they've got lots of people around them, everyone's like, "Ooh, what is it about them? Or, oh, I want to talk to them, right? Just because they're drawn to them because they have that aura about them. So it's like same with employers, like employers want to be wooed and like, "Ooh, look at that. Someone else wanted them. So maybe they are worth speaking to. Maybe we should bring them in for an interview. Go well, by the way, you said about most people go to your school from abroad. Obviously, not everybody stays in London, right? Some end Mm -hmm. up going back home. Why do you think that is? So I think sometimes some people have things like family businesses. That was a big one for this school. The other thing is sometimes they can make more money depending on where you come from. I mean, salaries in the US and I think Canada as well actually higher than they are typically in the UK. But then you've got a way of things like, you know, in the US, you don't have things like national health care, et cetera. You have less holiday times. So, you know, people also weigh up those factors too, because it's all about the work-life balance and what it is you need. Yeah. So why do they go back home? They go back home either because they've got a family business. Sometimes they get offered better offers with previous employers. I had that happen to a few students as well. Other times it's, you know, they've got family obligations or it's because they can get higher salaries. Also, depending on where you live, you might have things like, you know, better health care or more holiday time, things like that all play a factor into people's decision to go back home. 
a lot of the schools are expensive, right? I'm assuming that international students actually have to pay more, right? Because I know in Canada, obviously, like domestic students are cheaper than international. Yeah. So yeah. with that being said, it's definitely a big investment for a lot of professionals that feel stagnant in their career and they want to mm-hmm. like make a transition. So what's your yeah. advice in regards to finding the right school and whether it's worth the money for them to make that big investment? Yeah, I think it's really important to talk to alumni and make sure that people are doing the types of things that you think you would want to do after your MBA. So you can kind of gauge what their career path looks like and ask them for advice of how they got to where they are. Because you do, you know, have certain expectations if you're paying a certain amount for an education that you're going to make a certain salary when you leave that place. So if you, you know, are talking to people and they're all saying, oh no, I'm making half of that or I'm not making anywhere near I thought I was, that might not be the best school for you or might not be the best investment at that time. In regards to like helping professionals with their job search, is there a career center, so to speak, at your school? And what are some of the common mistakes that a lot of these professionals make once they are getting ready for their job search? Yeah, so most of the universities in London have a careers department. I think throughout the UK, they would have them as well for both undergrad and for the business school. So in the business school where I worked, we had a whole team. We had 12, I think it was about a team of 12. They were all dedicated career coaches for the MSc and MBA students. So we did everything from you could have a one-to-one appointment, you could practice for interviews, we could help you with writing your cover letter and your resume. And then also we did small group workshops. So, you know, all kinds of things from like your personal brand to networking, presentation skills, et cetera. And then we also did sector and industry specific events too. So it might be like careers in energy or like women in finance panel, all of those types of things we covered with them as well. One of the things that I've heard about going to these business schools is that it's not just about the education, it's also the networking aspect. A lot of professionals actually go in there to network with various people. Is networking a very important part of your program? And do you encourage people to network during the time that they have with you when you're working at that school? Oh, yes, definitely. Yeah. So we tell people to network. It's one of the first things that we have a session with them about. And then they have many opportunities to network with alumni from their programs. Also, you have things like our panel guests that come and they can network with people in different industries and the companies that they're interested in. So absolutely. And I think that's one good thing, again, you can use LinkedIn for is you can search for alumni from your universities, whether it's undergrad, business school, whatever it is. And it doesn't really matter if you don't know them. If you say to someone, hey, like if I said, hey, I see you're a Spartan, you went to Michigan State, I'd love to talk to you about blah, 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 guaranteed that person will respond to me. Because you have an affinity with them, even though they don't know you, they're still going to want to support you because they're like, hey, they're like me. We have something in common. I bet you there's something else or I'll probably like them because they also went to the same place I did. Going back to you in terms of making career transitions, your main business right now is career coaching, right? Yes, that's right. So how did you make that jump from employee to entrepreneur in growing your coaching practice? Yeah. So what I did was when I was working at the business school, I did that three days a week. And then the other two days I focused on building my own business. And actually during lockdown, so it was like January of 2020 was about the time. That's when I thought, you know what? I'm home all this time. Like we've got nowhere else to go. I might as well just do it because I've been saying I want to do it for so long. And then going back to the whole where I said like, hey, don't be afraid to take temporary and contract work. I also started freelancing for some outplacement agencies. So that also got me more experience with one-to-one coaching 
And I got to work with different industries that I hadn't worked with before. And it was also helping people that had been laid off. So they lost their jobs either due to the pandemic or budget cuts and things like that. So being able to then help them get back into work was just a great experience to add to my own business and helping, you know, to support people that were making career changes and, you know, could be like changing industries and things like that again. And from growing your client base and working with a lot of professionals, what are some of the main obstacles that they face? And we've probably already touched upon many of them, but what have you experienced working with your own clients? A lot of it comes down to confidence. People always want to like downplay their achievements and they don't want to feel like they're bragging or boasting about things. But something I always talk about when I'm helping people to prepare for interviews is it's not bragging or boasting if it's something you've actually done. And you also want to make sure that you're demonstrating to the employer that you are the best fit for them. So if you hold back or you play it down or you make it sound small, then one, they're not going to really be that impressed with you. And two, they're not going to be sure that you're the right fit for them. So you want to make sure that it's crystal clear that you're the best candidate for the role. And that means you have to tell them the things that you've achieved. And in regards to your own triple jump journey, what are some learning lessons that you could share with us for professionals that want to make the jump, whether it's just one of those that you mentioned or all three? Yeah, I would say one is you can't be afraid to just try things like fear is probably the thing that holds people back the most, right? Like either fear of rejection or fear that people think you are silly or, you know, fear that you won't find what you're looking for. But you can absolutely do it. The biggest thing you need to demonstrate is transferable skills. So whether that be your previous roles that you've done, things like you volunteered, you studied something online, you attended events, put all of those things down that are related to the new industry that you're interested in getting into. And don't be afraid to take old things off or things that are less relevant from your resume. People feel like they have to put everything on there. They end up with seven pages. And no recruiter will look at that. Like you're lucky if a recruiter spends about seven seconds on your resume. I say CV because that's the UK term, but I'll try to say resume because it's probably more North American people. So, you know, don't make it too long. You don't need to tell them everything you've done since you were 12. What's the most important? What's the most relevant? What's the big projects, the things that you're really proud of? And then what is the transferable skills if you're making that jump that will highlight that even though I'm, you know, I might have worked in PR and now I want to work in finance, but here are the things like I'm analytical, I'm good with data, I'm a clear communicator, I've worked in teams, all of those transferable skills. If you can do it in one company, you can do it in another. Absolutely. And If someone right now is listening and they're on the fence about wanting to make a career transition, what's the first step that you want them to make in the next, let's say next week or so? I would say talk to someone, talk to someone that's in that industry or company that you're interested in and just find out more about it. What is it they do? What does it look like on a day-to-day basis? You know, what advice do they have for someone that's working in that role? And that will give you some insight into are there things that are similar to what you've done previously Or if you find when you're talking to them, you think, oh, I could do that. Oh, actually, I have a similar experience that I could put on my resume or I could talk about in an interview, then go for it. If you can match 60 to 70% of a job description, then go for it. You do not have to fit 100%. Nobody ever does. And that is on purpose because they leave it as broad as they can so they can attract the biggest pool of candidates. 
Yeah, as I always tell people, it's a wish list. It's not a requirement. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they will never get it all because no person exists like that. No person has 27 pages of requirements. <laughs> yeah, no one has like five years of experience in this, 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 and this yeah, all at the same time, right? Absolutely, yeah. Companies are willing to train. If they see the potential, if they like you, you know, if they feel like you'd fit into their team, they can figure everything else out. Everyone can learn on the job. In regards to moving to another country, obviously work environments are a bit different, I'm assuming, between like America yeah. and UK. So what is some advice that you have from your own experience in terms of adapting to a new country's work environment? Yeah, I would say also, you know, make sure you get out there and socialize too. Like it's not all about work. You gotta have some fun as well. And also if you're gonna be living in a new country, then you need to understand the culture. You know, what are people watching on TV? What do they like to eat? Where are they going for a drink after work? What are the, some of the, like the cool restaurants in town? So ask people questions. Cause again, like, you know, people that have lived there their whole lives, they're always fascinated. Like, why did you move to the UK? Like what brought you to London? Why wouldn't you have stayed in LA? All of those things. Like they think I'm the crazy one where I'm like, but you live in such an amazing city. Like London is the best in the world. So they love to have conversations with people. So don't be afraid to like put yourself out there, you know, ask them questions, tell them like whatever it is, like what's your favorite grocery store? What's your favorite TV show? Because it's those little things like that's the stuff people talk about, right? If you're in the office, it's like they'll sit around like, oh, did you watch the episode yesterday of, you know, some silly soap opera or whatever it is or some game show or some music competition. So that helps you to build that rapport and those relationships with them. And then they turn into friendships. I know I haven't asked you this before. Obviously, the Queen passed, right? So how big yeah. of an event was it in the UK? It was a big event. Yeah. So they had such a long period of mourning as well, 10 days. It felt like it was quite heavy during that time. You know, you could like feel it in the air. A lot of people were sad. You know, she's an amazing woman. She's been in charge of the country for so long that, you know, even I was like getting used to saying that now it's like God save the king and all of that. It just feels so weird. It doesn't actually feel real. Like you still don't think that like she's gone. So it was definitely sad for a bit. Everybody was talking about it. Everybody was watching it. You know, we had the day off when her actual funeral happened. So it was a bank holiday over here. So nobody was working. Most businesses closed, which was weird because normally when you have a long weekend like that on a Monday or Friday, we have off, everything's still open. People meet friends and family for lunch and go out for a day. And everyone was just like stayed at home and everything was super quiet and still. It was kind of eerie. There was availability to actually go to the coffin, right? You could, yes. Time was like 24 hours or something crazy like that. (laughs) And I just don't, yeah. I mean, I respect her, but I didn't want to stand in line for 24 hours because also it was just, it was closed. Like all you were going to see was the coffin. Like it wasn't like she was actually on display or anything. (laughs) Wait, if the line was 24 hours, did you like bring a tent and you have to basically like move your tent as you oh, sleep? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like you got to, apparently people like were queued up and they had tickets and like, I guess you could get out and use like the portable toilets, but they had a cutoff point and there were people that had been waiting for like hours and days. And eventually it got to the point where, okay, we can only see this many people before it's like time to move her on. And so people that had been waiting got told, sorry, but you need to leave because you won't get a chance to see the coffin. And if that had been me, I would have been (laughs) livid. Imagine waiting (laughs) like 20 hours and then they tell you to, no, we can't wait. I know, imagine, imagine waiting 20 hours. Yeah. So it was not a risk I wanted to take. (laughs) (laughs) Megan, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. So I asked this question to every guest at the end of my conversation with them. So as you know, my podcast is about helping professionals overcome career challenges. 
you've moved a lot in your career, whether it's company, industry, or country, the triple jump. What was the biggest challenge that you had to overcome during that process to get to where you are today as an individual? I think I had to get comfortable with rejection because, you know, as much as I can say, oh yeah, I worked for these big companies, everybody goes, oh wow, you worked for, you know, some of these big things. But I probably have sent thousands of applications in my lifetime and got hundreds of rejections too. So that's why I always say to you, like, it is okay if you get a no, because it just means not yet or not that one, but a better opportunity will come along and you don't know what the next thing around the corner will be. So don't give up. Like if you really have that motivation and that passion to go for it and make a change, then go for it. Follow your dream and it will work out for you. As the saying goes, rejection is redirection. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And a door closes, another door open. Yes, exactly. So yeah, totally. don't get bummed by one rejection. Because no like, way. In, yeah, in like five to 10 years, you probably won't remember it. Because like when I did my I job search, like yeah, when I did my job search as a new grad many years ago, now looking back, I don't remember half the companies that rejected me, right? So, yeah, but at the yeah. time, right, it felt like the worst event in the world and exactly, like your whole yeah. life was probably crashing down. Yeah, I know, yeah. it's true. It's true. You can get stuck in that moment, but that's the thing. Don't get stuck in that moment because there's a better opportunity out there for you. And when you get the one that's meant for you, you'll realize why it didn't work out with the other companies. Yeah, everything heals with time, right? As they say. Yeah, and who knows? You might come back to that company years later and then you might be in demand based on the other experiences that you've had. Yeah, exactly. Like even if you get rejected now, maybe you come back a few years later and then you get because you Mm -hmm. have the experience, right? So never shut a door. No, yeah, right. Never burn a bridge, right? That's what we always say. (laughs) I'm sure you tell your clients the same. Don't burn any bridges because it's a small world out there. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. So Megan, how can people reach out to you to learn more about what you do and how you can help them? Yeah. So I'm on LinkedIn. Just look for my name, Megan Camacho. That's where I do most of like my professional individuals, career changers, coming back from career breaks and things like that. And then I didn't mention, but I also have a group program for working mothers. And so on my Instagram page, which is a totally different name at balance.mother, I focus on things like perfection and setting boundaries and honoring your ambition as a working woman. So if you're into that type of thing, check me out on Instagram as well. Great, Megan. Again, I really appreciate the time. And I hope a lot of my listeners found value and take action in making the career transition that they're looking to make. I hope so too. Thank you so much for having me, Max. I really love talking to you. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this content valuable, here's three ways I can help you achieve your career goals for free. First, subscribe to this podcast as I post two episodes a week. Number two, leave a five-star review as this helps build the credibility of the show so we can gain access to more influential people to interview and bring those lessons to you to help elevate your career. And number three, connect with me on social media. There's a link in the show notes for you to click on that compiles all my active social media accounts, making it easy for you to find me and connect with me. Thank you again for listening. And until next time, Thank you.